So we're going to finish up Matthew chapter 24 tonight. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles there, Matthew chapter 24. And we'll be looking at verses 45 through 51. And that's page 1142 if you're using a Bible under the seat in front of you. Let's go to the Lord in in prayer. Lord, as always, we need your help. We need your illumination as we look at your word. And so I pray that you would open our eyes, our ears, our hearts to understand. Give us wisdom, Lord, from your word tonight. Touch our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. So for several weeks, we have been studying the signs in this chapter that indicate the soon return of Jesus Christ. And I believe that the coming of Jesus Christ is sooner than later. In fact, we studied last week, Jesus spoke of a generation that will be alive on the planet when all of these signs come to fruition. And that's a generation of God's people that won't die. They're going to be raptured. And I certainly believe that we are that generation. I I believe Jesus is that close. Now, if that's true, if that's true, how should we be living? Should we sell all of our stuff? Quit our jobs, go sit up on a hill and look up? No. Should we just be hanging out? Just cruising? Absolutely not. The imminent return of Jesus, man, that should cause us to want to serve him. To know that he could be coming back at any time. And as we're going to see tonight, Jesus is coming with rewards for his people. It's not the time to cruise, it's the time to be as busy as you possibly can. Look at this final passage in the chapter. Read this parable carefully with me. Jesus says, Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he's not looking for him at an hour that he's not aware of and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
So there's a word that you really need to understand if you're going to understand this parable, and it's the word steward. I'm sure most of you are familiar with this word. You've probably heard it before. You look up steward in the English dictionary, and it speaks of a person who manages another's property or financial affairs. One who administers anything is the agent of another or others. It also refers to a person who has charge of the household of another, buying or obtaining food, directing the servants, etc. So you get it. You have an owner. They have a lot of property. They hire a steward to manage the property. Property doesn't belong to the steward. It's been given to the steward for the steward to manage for the owner. Now, in this parable, there's a very wealthy man. He's become incredibly wealthy. He has a large estate. He has a big piece of property. He has a wife and children. They probably have a big house. They probably have houses all over their property for the rest of the family. In those days when the sons grew up and got married, they'd build a house on dad's property. All this land to take care of, probably had vineyards, an orchard of olive tree, probably had all sorts of cattle, livestock, oxen, lamb, had servants, and in those days the servants lived on the estate, so they had places to live. You have this huge estate, this lots of people to care about, and still lots of reason for that estate to grow. Well, this wealthy man goes on a trip. He leaves his property. Doesn't tell anyone when he's coming back. He could come back at any time. And he gives responsibility to a steward. You are to take care of my estate the people in my estate, and the growth of my estate. And so away he goes, and the job of that steward was to take very, very good care of all of that, working very hard, knowing that the master could show up at any time. So that's the parable. What's the spiritual application? In that parable, who's the wealthy master? Jesus. Jesus is the wealthy owner. He's the owner of the kingdom, the whole kingdom, the people in the kingdom, the growth of the kingdom. He's in charge of all that. Jesus has gone on a long trip. He left the earth. He's been gone how long? About 2,000 years. He expects his kingdom to be growing in his absence. So he gives his kingdom to stewards. Who are the stewards? Look in the mirror if you're a Christian. We're the stewards. God has called us. To care for the people in his kingdom. And to work so that the kingdom would grow. 
and expand. Now in this parable, the steward manages a household, and so are we. We are to manage a household. Now what household? I believe the interpretation of this parable, speak, it can speak of many things, but I, I think it primarily speaks of this. Every one of God's people has a place. A calling. A work in the kingdom. So think about it. The kingdom of God is huge right now. It's all over planet earth. It's all over the place. But some have been called to serve in this city called El Paso, Texas. Canyoteo, Chaparral, Las Cruces. Right in this area. God has brought us there. God has planted us. This is where we work. The whole plan of God and the kingdom of God is sometimes also referred to as a harvest field. Think of the whole world as as a harvest field. And there God wants to see a harvest of souls. And we all have our own little spot in the harvest field. Geographically, for us here, El Paso, but also for your task. If you're a born-again Christian, the Lord Jesus Christ has saved you, but he's also gifted you, and he's called you. He's given you a place in the harvest. Everything you have as a Christian, God's given to you. Okay, Your intellect, your personality, your looks, your education, your connection. The Bible also speaks about the fact that every single member of the church has been given at least one spiritual gift. We all have a specific calling. We all have a place in the harvest. We all have a household to manage. Some are called to be pastors. Some are called to be missionaries. Some are called to run charitable organizations. But for many and for most, it's a calling to faithfully serve the Lord behind the scenes. And all of us, all of us, are called to be a good witness for Jesus where we work, where we live, where we play in our community, with the contacts we have, and all of the circle of friends. Listen, God has given us that spot, that household to manage. Now that should, that should excite you and also cause you to tremble. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, left heaven came to earth, died on a cross. You came to find out about it. He saved your soul. And then Jesus invested, gave to you gifts, talents, a calling to serve him. To be very hard at work at what he's called you to do. Think of that. He's he's delivered that into your hands. We want to be very, very good stewards. 
I hope. And take that very seriously. And so, what are the characteristics of a good steward as we see in this text? Well, look at the verse that shows up in verses, or the word that shows up in verses 45 and 46. Who then is a faithful and wise servant? 46. Blessed is that servant. So, good servants, good stewards, characteristics of a good steward is number one, you're a servant. You are a servant of Jesus Christ. And this is the Greek word doulos in the Greek, which speaks of the most abject term of slavery used in the New Testament. So you're a Christian where it's settled on who the master is in your life. Jesus. You serve him. You use the intellect that God gave you in service to God. You use the personality that God gave you in service to God. You use all of the gifts, all of the talents, all of the connections, all of the places, all of the calling that God has upon your life. You use it for him. Now, it's not something that we just do in a church building. You know, a lot of times we short-sight ourselves and we think all service has to be done in a church building. No, remember, it's everywhere that you're at. We're told in Colossians chapter 3, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That means... Be the best accountant that you can be. Serve God with that. The best lawyer, the best worker, the best student. Everything that you do with your life as a born-again Christian, you do for the glory of God, and you do as a witness for Jesus Christ. Everything you do is one of service to him. Now, we're also told in 2 Corinthians... Chapter 4, we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves, your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. So this also means that we serve others. We serve Christ. We serve others, if you're a good steward. Now, I want to add something to that. I would say a good service a good steward is actually doing service. This is not talking about being a servant. This is not reading about being a servant. This is not about telling your wife she needs to be more of a servant. It's you actively serving where God has placed you. I mean, notice what it says there. Verse 46, blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find him so doing. Doing. It's doing. It's serving. It's not reading about it. It's not being theological about it. It's not underlining all the verses about servanthood in your Bible. When Jesus comes again, will he find you serving? Doing. 
That's a good steward. Now notice what else it says about this good steward in verse 45. Who then is a faithful and wise servant? So a good steward is faithful. Faithful. Now there's two ways to think about faithfulness. You can think of faithfulness as, as first of all, as fidelity. Being faithful to your spouse. If you're married then you are to be faithful to your spouse. You're not to have any affairs. Your husband, your wife is number one in your life. And, and nobody shares that, that place with your spouse. Number one. Well, as a Christian, we're also supposed to be faithful to Jesus. We don't have affairs on Jesus. We don't get involved in idolatry. We don't put anyone before Christ in our life. And so, if it comes down to a choice between a friend and Jesus, you choose Jesus. If it comes down to a choice between a job and Jesus, you choose Jesus. You're faithful. Have you ever worked with somebody that you can't depend on? Because that's another idea for faithfulness, the idea of faithfulness is being someone you can rely on. It's reliability. It's dependence. It's you can count on somebody. They're consistent. Have you ever worked with somebody who's 50% reliable? What's that like? Not very good, is it? 80%? 90%? So this faithfulness also has this, this idea of you're consistent you do it. You're faithful. Whatever God has called you to do, you do it faithfully. Now remember, again, you are called to be faithful to what God has called you to do. You are not called to be faithful to what God has called someone else to do. What's God called you to do? You know, one of my great heroes in the faith is Billy Graham. We're going to talk about him one of these nights on, on our legends. Boy, Billy Graham. Awesome. God didn't call me to be Billy Graham. God called me to be Terry Gray, pastor of a church on the west side of El Paso, Texas. That's what I do. I'm faithful as best I can, to that. And God has called you. God's gifted you. There's some aspect in your life, some, and you're, you should be faithful to that. Consistent in that. And it, please understand, in heaven, the superstars aren't going to be the ones there because of a title. You know, because of what they do. Like, okay, a pastor or a missionary... No, the superstars in heaven will be those who do faithfully whatever it is that God called them to do. All rewards in heaven are proportional to the faithfulness that you do compared to what you're called to. Very important. There's an article in 1974, a newspaper about a man by the name of Leo Fortier. And his job at his church was to ring the bell of his parish church in Three Rivers, Quebec. That was his job. 
and, and the article goes, he had, just, he had just passed away, but Leo Fortier had done that every Sunday for 52 years. 52 years. 52 years, every Sunday, that guy rang a bell. This is what we're called to do. Whatever your bell, whatever that thing is, be faithful. Be faithful. What else does this say about a good steward? Who then is a faithful and wise? A wise person. Now this is not, this is a word that speaks of someone who is, it's not just someone who knows a bunch of knowledge, but someone who knows how to apply that knowledge. This is skillful in living. So this is somebody who knows the type of man that God wants him to be. The woman that God wants her to be. The husband. This is a person who knows the husband that God wants him to be. The wife that God wants her to be. The parent. The friend. The worker. The witness. All of that. The person knows all that. And they walk in that wisdom. Now there is absolutely no way. No way. That you're going to get that wisdom if you neglect a consistent understanding and study of God's word. Because it is this book that gives us wisdom on every matter in life. And so part of being this, this good steward is someone you're, 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 you're taking in wisdom. You're applying it to your life. You know, some Christians maybe don't know what their callings or gifts are. Man, you got to have that consistent study of God's word and that consistent practice of trying things out at church. The Lord will show you. So, characteristics of a good steward. Servant, doing it, faithful, and wise. That's what we need to be when Jesus Christ comes back. Because that person will be rewarded. It says very clearly, verse 46, Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you, that he will make him ruler over all his goods. When Jesus comes again, when you're raptured, if you're living that way, you'll be rewarded. Okay, real quickly, what are the characteristics of a bad steward? Well, the bad steward is completely opposite of the good steward. Not a servant, not doing service, not faithful, not wise. Look what it says of this person in verse 48. That evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming. So the evil servant doubts the return of the master. This person isn't concerned that Jesus is going to come back. And in fact, we're told that in the last days, 2 Peter chapter 3, 
scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Listen to the scoffing in that. In the last days, though, people, where's your rapture? Where's your return of Christ? Nothing like that. You've been... Church has been talking about that for years, but nothing's happened. And so there'll be a lots of scoffers and doubters. And that will get to some folks. They'll doubt the return of the master. And it says, because of that, verse 49, this person begins to beat his fellow servants. Bad to people. This is a person that doesn't care about people. They manipulate people, they use people, people are stepping stones, it doesn't matter, they're evil to people. And then what does it say? The master, in verse 49, he begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards. So this person becomes a worldly person. This person is living for the pleasures of this world and that's it. That's the characteristics of a bad steward. And as it says in the parable... When Jesus comes, that person will be completely caught off guard. And will be punished. And punished severely. Verse 50, the master of that servant will come on a day when he's not looking for him at an hour that he's not aware of and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That sounds like some severe punishment. That sounds like a person who's not saved. And I would actually say that I agree with many of the, the Bible scholars on this parable that most Bible scholars believe there are two Christians in this parable. There's the genuine Christian. And then there's what's called the professing Christian. Now the professing Christian is the person who claims to be a Christian. Maybe they've been in church. Maybe they can talk Christianese. Maybe they carry Bibles around or whatever. And they, they, they think they're Christians. They claim to be Christians. But they're not true Christians. My friend, listen, if that list, if that list describes your life, you're not a Christian. You're not a genuine Christian. If that's you, genuine born-again Christians have this list. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, everyone has it in equal amounts. But, man, if you are a born-again Christian, you have to have some semblance here of this. Some heart. You're born again. The Holy Spirit lives in you. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. You, you, you've come alive spiritually. You've got to have some of this in you. Very important. Good stewards will be rewarded. 
at the end of life. Are you one? The Bible says that when we are saved, we're born again and we produce fruit. And there should be fruit. There should be a born again experience. There should be at least caring about serving the Lord, serving others, being fruitful, being faithful to what God has called you to do. The good steward will be rewarded. But now here's something else I want you to think about. Even among genuine Christians, there'll be different levels of reward when Jesus comes again. Let me say that again. Even among genuine Christians, there will be different levels of reward. I want to put up a, a couple of very important verses that every Christian should know. Paul said in Romans chapter 14, verse 10, Why do you judge your brother, or why do you show contempt for your brother? Talking to Christians, Paul, including himself, who is a Christian, says, We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. How many Christians will stand before the judgment seat of Christ? All. If you're a born-again Christian, you will stand one day at the judgment seat of Christ. Paul goes on to say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him, for we must all appear before what? The judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Check that out. All Christians will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And each one will receive the things they've done in the body, what he has done, good or bad. Now this is a famous passage. This is known as the Bema Seat passage, and the idea is that as Christians, one day we will all stand before King Jesus, Judge Jesus, at the Bema Seat. Now, the Bema Seat in those days was up on a platform. You'd come into a courtyard, into a courtroom, there'd be a judge present, and, and you'd, you'd come and you'd stand before that judge. It was also in athletics, a little platform. Where, I mean, you came before, what you did on the field was judged, and you got rewards, and there were different levels that you stood on, first, second, third. Please understand, this judgment is not judgment for sin. This has nothing to do with salvation. If you are a born-again Christian, you're saved. Amen? All of your sins have been forgiven. This judgment seat has nothing to do with someone being condemned for sin. At this Bema seat, it's a rewards ceremony. It, it's, it's where crowns are distributed. 
So one day, every Christian, including you and me, individually, will stand before King Jesus at an award ceremony. And awards will be handed out. And what's going to be evaluated? Were you faithful? Did you know your calling? Did you go through it? Did you serve? I believe also that at the Bema seat, there is an evaluation of motivations. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. But there's a loss of reward. There's a loss of reward. So, we are going to be evaluated. We're going to have to give an account before Jesus at some point for the way we lived after we got saved until the day we took our last breath, whether we died or he came for us by the rapture. And do you want to be rewarded? Or do you want to lose reward? Very important to think about that. Now, it's hard to understand this. I, I... I don't understand exactly how this can work and how you get rewards and crowns and maybe there's some sense of loss. How can heaven be any more heaven for us depending upon what we did? I don't know. I don't know how that, but I do know that there's going to be something. I've heard it put like this. Everyone in heaven will have a full cup. Everyone. Some will have bigger cups. The idea is depending on your lifestyle here and how you work, you'll have a a bigger capacity and appreciation for it. I don't know how that's going to work. Here's here's what a lot of scholars think, and this this could be very, very important. This, This could happen. When does this Bema seat judgment take place? Well, here we are in the church age. I believe the rapture of the church is going to take place. We go into the seven-year tribulation period. And the church is in heaven during the seven years tribulation. A lot of Bible scholars and prophecy folks believe that this Bema seat judgment takes place during this tribulation period. And then Jesus comes again and we return. The church returns with Jesus Christ and we go into this millennial reign, a thousand-year kingdom of Jesus reigning on planet earth and some believe that it's at the Bema seat where you will be rewarded for what you're going to do in the millennial kingdom 
In fact, verse 47 in this parable, the master says, Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. The idea is, man, you did good. You, you were a good steward in this temporal time frame here. You're going to be ruler over more things in the millennial kingdom. Very possible. The Bible says that we'll receive crowns. Now, what's the reward for that? I personally believe that we see in in, in the book of Revelation that all of the elders in heaven, what do they do with their crowns? They cast their crowns at the feet of Jesus. Won't that be beautiful? To be able to cast that crown at the feet of your Lord. What if you don't have a crown? I don't know how this works. You'll still be praising Jesus, no doubt. Heaven will still be great. But these rewards are important. I don't think we can truly understand how it all comes together, how it all works together. But you put all this together, man, This world, time, is the testing ground for eternity. It really is. What happens here will have an impact on there. And I don't know about you, I want to have a great impact there. I told you this Sunday about my grandpa's dream, how he had a dream where um, he was coming to heaven and the doors just barely, they were starting to close and he barely squeezed in at the last second and it changed his life forever. He woke up that next morning and said, I'm going to start serving the Lord. And it really made an impact, this idea that, man, I want to get to heaven and knowing that I've done all everything that I could to serve the Lord and do it to the best of my ability. So, do you know your spot in the field? Do you know your department in the kingdom? Do you know where God's called you to serve? And are you serving and are you faithful? These are important things, and I actually think that as Christians, we should truly search our hearts regularly and think through these things. David wrote in Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. See if there's any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. That's a good thing to do regularly. Lord, In this season of my life, am I doing what you've called me to do? Am I doing it with the proper motivation? 
Is there something wicked in me? Lead me in the way of everlasting. I think it's important to do that regularly. Here's where we live. Jesus has entrusted something to each one of us. And here's where we will be one day. Let me say as, as, uh, as we talk about this, it's never too late. It's never too late to start serving the Lord like you know you should. Maybe you've been a Christian for many, many years. And you never even thought that God had a plan for you in ministry and the expansion of his kingdom. That's all for those, those uh, professionals at church, the ministers, and all maybe the folks that are out there doing things. No, this is for every single one of us. Where's your spot? Have you found it? Have you thought about it? It's never too late. Find it. Do it. Maybe you've been a born-again Christian and there was time in your life where you really were serving the Lord. You were, you were going for it, but something happened in your life, something, and, and you fell. Well, get back on track. Get back on track. It's never too late to start to do what's right, to make these things matter. Start now. Those of you who know what you're doing and what God has called you, just keep it up. Keep growing in that. Now, as I said, it's very important. That beam of sight judgment is not for judgment of sin. That's for, for rewards. If you get to this seat, you're saved. And that's a good thing. And I would just want to say as we close tonight, are you going to even get to that court? I hope you do. But have your sins been forgiven? The whole process begins by you placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and asking him to be your Lord and Savior and then to use your life. Let's bow our heads. Let's close our eyes. Let's just take a few moments. Father, we look at the idea of salvation tonight and we understand that it is all because of what you have done. It is through faith in your son that we are saved. And we thank you for that. We thank you for the grace. We have no hope If you hadn't done what you did for us at the cross, we have no hope. And we understand that that life with you begins with faith in you. For what you did for us. And I pray, Lord, if there would be anyone here tonight who has not yet turned their life over to you. 
to begin this walk with, with you. I pray that they do so right now. And then, Lord, I also pray um, for us as your people. We'd be wise. We'd be faithful. We'd seek to please you. That we'd want to be used by you. Make us servants. Make us wise. Make us faithful. Lord, I pray for anyone here tonight who belongs to you and doesn't know yet their, their place. Show them. And I pray, Lord, that you would meet them as they seek you on this issue. Make these matters known to them. Now, if you are here tonight and you've not yet received Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want you to have an opportunity right now. That's where it all begins. Jesus died on the cross for you and rose again. And he can be your Lord and Savior right now. Everything can change right now. If you haven't done so yet, receive him right now. Just a a prayer of faith. Just to cry out to him. Say, Lord Jesus, be my Savior. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I place my faith and my trust in you. Change my life. Fill me with your spirit. And help me to use my life for your glory and for your service. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand. We'll close with this song. Secure in me.